Welcome to Free Thoughts. I'm Aaron Powell. And I'm Trevor Burrs. Joining us today is Kevin Vallier. He's Associate Professor of Philosophy at Bowling Green State University, where he directs the program in philosophy, politics, economics, and law. And he recently published a new entry on neoliberalism in the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy, which gives us a good excuse to have him back on the show to talk about this much maligned idea. Welcome back, Kevin. Great to be here. A lot of conservatives don't know what Marxism is, but they know they don't like it. Therefore, everything they don't like must be Marxism. Is neoliberalism kind of the same thing for the left? Well, I think so to some extent. At least it was for a few decades, um, you know, where neoliberalism was like something like things seem to be moving in a markety direction and we don't we don't like it, but we're going to associate other things with it, like the World Trade Organization. Like that's part of neoliberalism or like the World Bank is part of the IMF is part of neoliberalism. Um, and then they started to add other stuff like colonialism is part of neoliberalism. So everything that capitalism was said to do in the past, neoliberalism is said to do now. Um, but there's no consistent definition or use of the term um, um, over the last few decades. It had been used at various points more coherently in, uh, before then. Um, Phil Magnus has some good stuff on it. But yeah. Over the last 30 years or so, I'd say, yeah, it's, it's, most, it's primarily a term of abuse. I'm usually immediately suspicious about just adding a prefix to a word and saying you have a new concept. I mean, the, the academia loves to do that, and especially the kind of literary criticism crowd loves to do that. Uh, so is Neo doing anything, any work? I mean, it's a different word than liberalism, but like, is it doing, anything, doing any work rather than just the word liberalism? Um, I think it does a couple of things. The first is that it signals in its way, even though it probably it may, shouldn't strictly, strictly speaking, given its relation to the word liberalism, but it usually denotes a doctrine of political economy, whereas liberalism, the word, doesn't really do that. Um, it, you know, you can be a market liberal, or a, but if, if you're a neoliberal, you're for markets. Um, so it, it adds content in that respect, even though it's kind of kind of weird that it doesn't. Adding the word new me makes the term liberalism refer to a smaller range of positions than liberalism does. Um, it also connects that it's a kind of form of liberalism that is was newer in the 20th century than the forms that predominated in, say, the first three quarters of the 20th century, um, even though it harkens back in some ways to classical liberalism. Um, it's sometimes the case that people who talk about neoliberalism don't want to admit that people like Adam Smith um, were market liberals. And so neoliberalism is a way to make this look like a totally new and terrible thing. Where does the term come from then? You know, is it is it a term that a group of people got together and said, we are neoliberals? Or because it often feels like it's more a term that's used by critics to label people neoliberals. <sighs> I mean, that's, that's what it's become. Um, uh, you know, like I said, Phil Magnus has done some work on the like early origins of the term. And I think it was originally a term, uh, term of abuse in the thirties, but I think there were some people that described themselves as neoliberals at the time. But my work's all focused on the discussions that have popped up over the last 30 or 40 years because the word went out of currency for a long time until people revived it, like Foucault. So insofar as is when you started writing this essay, are you are you inventing or clarifying a concept by identifying it, say, with the, the three figures, Hayek, Friedman, and Buchanan? Um, or, or did you kind of do like an archaeology to figure out where the Venn diagrams of the way people have used this word overlap? Um, so there are a couple of constraints. There was inevitably a bit of crafting because you wanted the word not to have a pejorative meaning. So, so you had to craft a little bit because the standard use of the term was as a term of abuse. Um, but, um, and also the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy is an encyclopedia of philosophy. So you had to look at what neoliberal doctrines were, not what neoliberalist, neoliberal global economic policy is, right? So, so I had to craft neoliberalism as a philosophical doctrine, which means I needed to look at, you know, what they said had had a philosophical character. Um, and then the thought was, well, I better look at 
the people who are usually called neoliberals to see what they their philosophical commitments are. Um, so I focused on folks in the broad ambit of neoliberalism, um, and I tried to explain variations and similarities between their political philosophies. Um, so it did involve some crafting, uh, certainly, but I was starting off with uses of the term where a lot of new scholarship over the last five years has used the, the figures that, that these, these scholars have used uh, uh, to or who describe as neoliberals. So a bit of crafting, but the recent historical scholarship helped me not be entirely crafting. But it was inevitable that you have to do some crafting of the term. Your article starts with an examination of, I guess, the ways that the term gets misused or what you think are less helpful ways of thinking about it. And that seems like a for, – for a term that is in most people's mind just a pejorative um, and with a smaller group of people who you know claim it in opposition, maybe that's a good place for us to start too. Like what are, what are some of the ways that if we toss around the term people are thinking of but either – aren't helpful or aren't accurate? Well, um, the most inadequate use of the term, well, there's one I didn't even cover because it was so dumb, but um, which is that neoliberalism is the late 20th century forces of capital reclaiming their power, um, which, you know, doesn't even make, I mean, it's just by that brief history of neoliberalism book written by a geography professor, it, it was just, you know, a disastrous use. But most of the time, and you see this in that book, but in almost all the books on neoliberalism until fairly recently, that neoliberalism was a kind of ethos. It was like every, all that matters is profit. Let's get wealthy, you know, and, and everything in the world is seen through the cash nexus of, of the buying and selling. So Foucault's analysis was often of Gary Becker, um, of which that's more fair to say than almost anybody that you would describe as neoliberal. But people who use the term following Foucault just didn't know what the differences are between market liberals. And so Becker's tendency to look at things through a pretty narrow cost-benefit lens, even though it's useful, would miss a lot of subtlety. Um, sometimes people have, and mostly philosophers, have associated neoliberalism with utilitarianism, various uses of the term utilitarianism, by the way. So, you know, some people think that neoliberalism is all about the cost-benefit analysis. It's all about weighing up the costs and benefits of various policies, and that's all really what matters in judging whether it makes makes sense. Um, so it's a way of being a utilitarian, where utilitarianism is crudely understood, not in line with the tradition as rich as a cotton, say, Mill and, and Sidgwick's uh, hands. Sometimes people equate neoliberalism with libertarianism, where it's not like there's a very sharp distinction between them, but mostly um, the issue is that neoliberalism, as it's generally used, would not include Murray Rothbard. And, you know, so like you can't just identify neoliberalism as the market should do everything. You know, because the vast majority of people that that term has been used to describe have not been anarchists. Though Quint Slobodian, at one point after his really cool book, Globalists, tried to put Mises and Rothbard and Hoppe under the term neoliberalism. And I just pushed back against that uh, with him. Um, and he, he hasn't really settled on it. I said, look, look, your definition of neoliberalism is that people are trying to build a certain kind of state capacity to create and sustain markets. So you can't call someone a neoliberal if they're an anarcho-capitalist, like by your own definition. So some people try to stretch it, even scholars, but just, you know, it doesn't really work. But it usually denotes people who are like students of Hayek or students of Friedman who are going around the world trying to build market institutions in societies with extensive states to, to get them on a more stable footing, right? Like cutting spending, lowering taxes privatizing nationalized industries, having more free trade, all that good stuff. But neoliberals aren't anarchists. Um, and that leads to the final confusion, which is that very few neoliberals think about neoliberalism as their ideal. So a lot of times they're like anti-ideal theory in the way that Hayek sometimes is. Um, 
But, you know, Buchanan, I think, fits under neoliberalism, but what he thinks is the very best is anarchy. Um, and uh, Friedman wasn't always clear because, you know, I don't think he wanted to go as far as his son, or at least to say so openly. On that point, this, this seems tied to one of those sort of lines in your in your essay, which I think is interesting. We should understand neoliberalism as a doctrine about how politics and the economy should be organized. It is not a theory of justice or legitimacy. Uh, does that make it different than someone like Nozick or Hayek? Yes, it makes it different from Nozick. So, um, you know, the neoliberals are not saying the reason we should have markets is because it's required by justice. Like they almost never say that. They do sometimes allude to certain things being requirements of justice. Um, but in general, no, that's, that's not their stress. And they're also not giving a theory of when the state has authority. Like they don't have, it's not a theory of when one ought to obey the state. That's not it either. It's basically what its political and economic policies and some of the structure of its constitutions ought to take. What, what structure ought they to take? Now, it's hard to distinguish between all these things um, because the neoliberals themselves didn't distinguish between all these things because they weren't, you know, using the categories that analytic philosophers use. But if you apply the categories analytic philosophers use, I think that's what you have to, you have to say, because the standard way of doing political philosophy these days and for the last several decades is that you um, divine a conception of a theory of justice and then you try to reject the other theories of justice and then you say, okay, well, what institutions are implied by this conception of justice? And I think there's some use in that enterprise, but I just don't think that's how neoliberals were thinking about what they should be doing, what they were trying to do. Does this mean then that it's somewhat of a category mistake to think of neoliberalism from a philosophical perspective and instead just to say like – because there are certainly like – I know people who call themselves neoliberals. Our friend Sam Bowman who will tell you that he invented neoliberalism is also a utilitarian. Um, but there are also people who are neoliberals who are not. And, and so to think of it that way versus just – Neoliberalism is a term for like a family of policy preferences and views about how a government, like what institutions we should have, but there isn't, there isn't a philosophy there at all. Well, I think that it is often used in that way, but then it, whenever people use it that way, they end up appealing to like, they believe in this kind of liberty or they believe value works like this, or they believe what we ought to do is that. And so, you know, when you, when you zoom in a bit into what they're talking about, there are philosophical claims, ethical claims about value, about the nature of liberty. Um, so I do think there's a philosophical dimension to neoliberalism. And so I, what I'm doing in the piece is defining it as a philosophy, but I'm not ruling out that the term can be used to refer, like you say, well, neoliberal philosophy is this, right? But it could be like neoliberal ideology is this other thing. They better be related, uh, philosophy and ideology. But yeah, yeah, they probably should be. But so if we're going to get into the 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 kind of big shared concepts, as you we pointed out, you you focus on Hayek, Friedman, and James Buchanan, who are usually put into the libertarian camp. But that's we kind of discussed. That's like not super important now of course people like rothbard denied that hayek was a libertarian so you know (laughs) so but what what would you say so first of all why if they're not nozick or something why do they believe in freedom do they all do they all have like a same version like generally speaking freedom is best but but why do they think this um well for hayek right it's all about discovery I mean, he says if, you know, we knew what the result for, of liberty would be, there would be, he says there would be no case for it, which I've always like, no, that's not true. Um, but Hayek's, you know, I always, you know, tell people that like Hayek's a social epistemologist, like first and foremost. He's trying to figure out, socially speaking, what we can know and what we can't know. And almost everything he says is through the lens of an epistemologist. You know, what do we not know? What can we discover? How can we figure out things together? Um, so, you know, that's 
that's one reason he likes freedom. But he also likes freedom because, and, and Friedman says this too, it's like we have freedom because we don't know what morality requires. So it's, and it, sometimes it's not clear. Like sometimes it looks like they think, well, there is no like objective thing morality requires. Like for Hayek, you know, oh, well, we have these moral, we have all these moral beliefs because of that's how we evolved. Um, but sometimes it sounds like from Hayek, or especially Friedman, like that there is a moral reality. We just don't know very much about it. And so we shouldn't legislate it because we just don't know that much about it. And people ought to be able to free to try different forms of life to maybe figure out what it is. I, I think Friedman was just like not very interested in philosophy. Um, and so he's the one that's hardest to tease anything out of. So a lot of what he says strikes me as like the most uh, confusing. So, now, so know, to, cl to clarify, yeah. so like, is, would this be the difference of being like saying uh, the drug war is wrong or the or governments can't prohibit uh, what you put in your body because uh, it's not something that governments are allowed to do based on morality? That's not an argument they would use. They would say something like maybe drugs are a good way of living life and finding happiness um, and because we don't know we should let them be legal. Is that kind of how they would approach it? That's one kind of thing, but Buchanan's a little different because you, well, because Buchanan's so expressly a contractarian and his contractarianism comes before everything else, even as libertarianism He's a contractarian first. So part of freedom is that we agree to the terms of social life. And that's the only way they can have any justification. Um, that's the only way they can have any authority for us is that we agreed to them. So one reason that, you know, we should have this or that policy is it's allowed by a constitute, a set of constitutional rules to which we would or could agree. Um, and that's also, I think, why he thinks it by and large preserves freedom. But I think he, I mean, and he doesn't, you know, Buchanan's like periodically throws some shade on Hyatt for stressing evolution too much. Um, so I don't, he's not as focused on discovery in that sense, but obviously he's extremely influenced by Frank Knight, um, to a crazy degree. And, you know, obviously Frank Knight is just always, was always talking about, you know, things we couldn't know and when we could assign a probability to an outcome and when we couldn't assign a probability to an outcome and how to explain entrepreneurship and all that stuff. So I just see, and this is something people very frequently miss. And one reason I want to do the article. Is that just a lot of neoliberal claims are based on what we don't know and how to organize things so that we can know more than we did before. Um, but Buchanan's a little different. Now, now the weird thing is, is that in Mirage of Social Justice, you know, Law, Law Legislation and Liberty Volume 2, Hayek says, uh, d does say that he kind of likes what Rawls is doing, although he didn't admit it later, he didn't read a theory of justice, just some of Rawls's less status earlier papers. Um, but he does say that like, there is a kind of contractarian formula that if used very modestly, um, can be used to do some eminent criticism of the social order. We sort of ask, well, uh, we can evaluate this local state of affairs by whether it measures up to rules that we could agree to if we didn't know our situation or circumstances. Like, he actually says that, um, but he never makes very much of uh, his this contractarian commitment. And a lot of people don't even know it's in Mirage at all because it's so understated. You, you know, if you're a philosopher, you can see it. It'll come up, but it, it doesn't even re it register for most people. There's also the there's also the, foot, the footnote in there. I don't know if you're familiar about Rawls. Well, there's a footnote where uh, Hayek says that he is asked – because this is he was during the bombing of London when he was in London he had young kids he was asked where would you send your kids what country would you want to send your kids to um if you wanted to get your kids out of out of blitz blitzed London and he didn't know he says I'm paraphrasing not knowing my kids um capabilities and not you know, they're too young for me to know what they're really good at and what they're not good at um I would send them to the United States uh, uh Except, um, especially he also says because they're not black. Uh, but it's a, it's a, it's a weird, um, original position he kind of puts himself in vis-a-vis -vis his kids, right? Like, I don't know, I, I, I don't know my kids' capabilities, so I want to send them to the country that would maximize their capabilities if I didn't know their capabilities. Yeah. And it's funny because, you know, Buchanan has a version of this too, and he calls his veil of uncertainty. Now, this one isn't about coming up with a theory of justice, but it is like, well, how do we choose constitutional rules? Well, 
The cool thing is that almost nobody knows how well they're going to fare under constitutional rules. So they can't actually rationally choose constitutional rules that would be biased towards them. Um, now, of course, Buchanan was just wrong about that. Like, if you're, um, you know, a Roman Catholic integralist, like, you know, you want the Catholic Church to be part of the Constitution as the established church. But in general, Buchanan was thinking, well, it's good that, like, pure constitutional choice has built into it, that it's extremely hard, if not impossible, to predict how you will fare under it. And so that's going to ensure that your choice is a more rational and fair one than otherwise. Because um, Buchanan, like, always really liked Rawls. Um, and tried to correspond with them a bunch early on, but Rawls eventually lost interest because he became convinced that they weren't doing the same thing, like that Buchanan was doing constitutional design and Rawls was doing the theory of justice in order to do the theory of constitutional design. Um, whereas my view is he should have kept reading Buchanan so and Tullock so that he would have done constitutional design better because he didn't do it very well. Like, for instance, not adopting the full compliance assumption, which of course Buchanan. Obviously, it was like his thing to reject it. That <laughs> right? they got the government officials and people would comply with with whatever laws were made. So, yeah, I mean, it 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 just kind of they do periodically want to appeal to some notion of an impartial or fair choice, and that it would be better to have a constitutional order that's in somehow fair, that's somehow fair. Like Hayek talks about this a lot with equality before the law and just how important equality before the law is and how bad it is to try to have a substantive egalitarian principle that determines, you know, what people's share should be. Because if you try to work those out, it's going to lead in an authoritarian uh, direction for all the reasons, you know, we're familiar with. So th there are inklings of political philosophical principles. And more than inklings in some cases. Um, so, you know, it, it wasn't a stretch to bring out, it wasn't too much of a stretch to bring out their philosophical views. Um, I didn't go into all their philosophical views because, you know, Buchanan is like, he just has some weird stuff to say that, um, I think is pretty interesting in some respects, but is, um, pretty odd in others. Um, but so I didn't go into like all of their philosophical views, just the ones that were relevant to their political philosophy. Well, on the political philosophy, then I wanted to ask about the relationship between neoliberalism and democracy and do it by picking up on something that you said a while back in our conversation where you, you dismissed the, the one definition of neoliberalism as, you know, capital reasserting itself. And that, um, that seems to me to be one of the main criticisms or characterizations that people who use neoliberalism as a pejorative and when they point to stuff like, you know, Margaret Thatcher's reform efforts in, in the UK, uh, as, you know, an example of neoliberalism or, um, other efforts to kind of undo state socialism. Um, and it does seem like there is, Neoliberalism is is a fan of markets, but it's not – typically it's not a fan of markets in the way that say like a left market anarchist would be in that neoliberalism seems to have a – if not a soft spot, like a – at least a much support for like big business as a important – economic institution and driver of growth and they defend large corporations – quite often. Um, and so is it – it does seem like you could get the sense if you were someone on the left who is opposed to markets in that way, in kind of the grand capitalist way, um, that that in fact it is – it's it's an apology for big business and the status quo of multinational corporations um, and that it's therefore – it seems has an anti-democratic – bent in that it's you know if if the democratic populace wants you know to to regulate or wants its democratic socialism neoliberalism is going to push back against that in favor of business so i don't i mean i think they're they're wrong obviously the left is wrong in their critiques of 
the market and a lot of their critiques of business and so on. But it doesn't seem like a incoherent objection from at least if you're sitting in that perspective. One thing that Friedman talks a lot about and Hayek and Buchanan is freedom of entry uh, into markets. And what they're really concerned with, I think, is they want a decentralized power. They really like it. Um, Friedman really, really likes it. But they think the best way to do it is with exit mechanisms where you can have competition or entry mechanisms where, you you know, anyone can enter a market to provide a service. Anyone can choose not to buy products in that market. And they think that's going to produce the kind of decentralization of power that many on the left want. But what you see on the left is the best way to get um, control over power is through voice, right? It's through democracy. So I think, you know, both wings of liberalism are interested in liberty and interested in the limitation of power and arbitrary power, but they think there are different kinds, different institutions. So libertarians or in class, you know, and neoliberals tend to stress that power is controlled when government's limited and there's competitive markets, competitive modulo, whatever uh, Friedman and Hayek's differences are. Um, and on the left, they say we need more democracy. We've got to democratize stuff to, to make it free and, and, and limit its power. Um, so um, I think what the neoliberal will say is, well, look, if corporations arise on a relatively free market, then that's an indication that they're, that they're doing some good. Um, but um, oftentimes corporations arise when there's not freedom of entry and exit from markets. And then, you know, they might get too big. So I think that's the view. In the terms of another critique that you get of neoliberalism, and this is just also capitalism in general, is this critique that those the adherents are they believe that this system structures society correctly because it puts the better people on top or the people who at least serve to capitalist purposes better than than other people, and therefore the resulting kind of ordering of society in a free market sense has some sort of justice to it. Um, how would that resonate with, with the, the neoliberal philosophy as you're explaining it in Hayek and Friedman and Buchanan in particular? They'll say things about justice here and there, um, but they're, I think if you really push them, they would say something like, well, the reason we want these institutions is because they're generally the best. And then they would be like kind of cagey on what the best was because they want to be subjectivists about it. And they say, well, it just kind of depends on what people's values are. Um, maybe they care about justice. Maybe they care about the good. But they do seem clearly to have certain intuitions about justice, like the coercion is a, is a great you know, source of injustice. That um, treating people unequally before the law for Hayek, that's a very grave injustice. Like He identifies more with the anti-aristocratic elements of the liberal tradition, at least explicitly. Whereas I think Buchanan was actually personally the most hostile to um, aristocracy. He hated the Kennedys passionately. Um, and um, uh, yeah, so there is a kind of, you know, anti-elitism, um, although, you know, Friedman spent a lot of time with elites, but um, he, I don't think he ever, like, was subservient to them. Like, that's what was kind of cool about the guy is he would just say, well, this don't do this or do that or tell whatever military general that was that having a draft is slavery. Um, so I think um, in general, there is uh, a kind of hostility um to certain basic kinds of unfairness like aristocratic privilege like excess coercion you know Tyke talks about treating people as tools you know they don't yeah you know, so so i mean like i said it the view doesn't they're not what they're not they're not trying to proceed in the manner that late 20th century political philosophers proceed Late 20th century political philosophers proceed from what is justice, right? That's the first question. What is justice? And for the neoliberals, that was just not the first question. So justice comes up, but it's not the main topic of conversation. 
Whereas for Nozick, that is the question, right? It's like, what is, well, what is justice, right? So for Rawls, what is justice, right? That's the, that's the question. Buchanan, I mean, it's funny because I think he thought that contractarianism described in some way what was just, but he doesn't talk about justice very much, um, even though he knows that Rawls did. I think he's more interested in cooperation and all the reasons that cooperation is a good thing. What's the relationship between neoliberalism and the welfare state? Because that seems to be one area where, say, they differ a lot from libertarians in that they see not just – my sense is the argument is not just that the welfare state you know, is something we ought to have in order to prevent people from you know, living in poverty um, or you know, it, like to help the people at the bottom, but that like it is – a lot of them make an argument that the welfare state is – a a piece of a well functioning capitalist economy that like you need you need a welfare state or a basic income or something like that in order to enable the institutions of a free economy to continue politically or to thrive and so on so is that does neoliberalism require a robust welfare state I mean, it depends. Um, there's for everybody. There's either a welfare state or the weird thing through Buchanan, which I found a weird, weird thing. This is almost total silence on basic welfare programs. Um, although he was a supporter of 100% inheritance tax, um, and I presume he thought the government, the uh, the money should go to some kinds of government programs or something. Um, but. Um, for Friedman, it looks like it's just, look, I mean, you know, some people are get really poor and they can't take care of themselves or they're, you know, invalids or whatever. And we should just make sure we take care of them. And that can be done through like a negative income tax. Um, but Hayek's position is subtler. Uh, I do think he thinks that there is a kind of injustice in pure laissez-faire. I know, again, doesn't start from justice, but I think he thinks that that's a problem. But he also thinks that I think markets are going to work better when you take certain dumb risks, big, giant, dumb risks out of life, like not saving at all for your retirement um, or getting really, really sick. Now, he prefers that markets provide these things and that government subsidize them. So, you know, generally, like he said, he was a fan of Friedman's proposal for vouchers. He really, really liked the idea. Um, so in general, he wants, say, markets to provide unemployment insurance, but for, for state subsidies. So the kind of welfare state that he's for is just more minimal, um, than in terms of what government produces. Um, but I think he thinks it plays a variety of, of important roles, not just reducing poverty, but I think he also helped, thinks it helps people to be kind of at peace with the system. Um, and I actually think there's something to that. I mean, the main reason I'm not a libertarian in my non-ideal theory is that I think we evolved to be extremely risk averse. And I think people are just going to demand, overwhelming majority of people are just going to demand the welfare state. And so it's just really, fe it's not feasible to get rid of it. The best thing to do is just to convince people like they'll be more secure and have more money if markets provide the services and government subsidize them. Um, that's a hard enough sell as it is. Um, you know, I still would like to do without it, but, um, I just think there's certain features of human psychology that make it not inevitable, but in a democracy, virtually inevitable. Um, because people are just going to say, yeah, I mean, I don't want pe others to have to suffer from just these dumb risks. So what is, how do Obama sell Obamacare, right? You shouldn't go broke just because you got sick, right? Um, that's the that's the thought um, that I think drives a lot of the expansions of the welfare state. But neoliberals, I think, kind of accept it as a reality. I think Hayek thinks it has some positive functions uh, in general. Uh, I think that um, it also helps people avoid his concern with arbitrary interference, uh, not just interference. But um, it's interesting that yeah, another term that I've heard a lot. Um, I mean, I really hope that your project to actually have neoliberalism have substance rather than just epithet. Uh, but another one that I hear a lot to describe people like Hayek Friedman and Jay Zucanon is market fundamentalist. And Hayek, the idea, in particular Hayek, that Hayek is um, just doc dogmatically adheres to the market 
uh, you know, market will solve all things. But but actually, if we're, if we're just talking about welfare programs, the amount of welfare programs that he believed in was quite large. Um, and, and Rothbard, that was one of his big problems with the Constitution of Liberty. Um, I know that recently, um, Aaron and I both participated in a, a, a couple of years ago in a kind of manuscript review for a book coming out by Andrew Koppelman that, uh, Yes, that, he, that, that is called the corruption of libertarianism. I think the working title will make eventually be called that. Yeah, and uh, Andy's a good friend. Yeah, yeah, it was Andy's. I've helped attempt- him with that book a lot. It was originally Hayek versus Rand. He didn't even know who Rothbard yeah. was. Yeah, but, yeah. Exactly. Well, that was what he told us. He said that um, you know he probably thought that Hayek was some sort of market fundamentalist, and then he went and actually read him because uh, he wanted to take down libertarianism. And he and his and part of his book is to say the left should read Hayek. Like, I mean, he's not as he got not, convinced by some of what Hayek said. Yeah. I said, would you describe yourself as a left Hayekian? And he said, that's fine with me. Yeah. So that, so that interesting thing, like, so neoliberals in, in for, this is where you can bring in libertarians critiquing neoliberals for being too squishy, right? On all of these things, critiquing Hayek for being too squishy, Friedman for being too squishy, but are they squishy in different ways? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, into different degrees. So, um, it is, I mean, I think Friedman was the most willing to go for the market. Um, even, but, um, the thing about Friedman was that he was just so, I was just so deeply focused on actually getting people to change, like the public and for politicians to change their minds. Like he just, he thought he could do it and he did do it because he was amazing at it. Um, there are few people ever that are more persuasive than him. And you listen to him talk. Um, uh, on, on video or, or, or whatever. I mean, he was a truly grand communicator. Uh, his writing was fabulous, but in person, um, he was, he was really extraordinary, but there are times where, you know, he could get, he could sound pretty hardcore, but he was really focused on trying to move people at the margin. Um, uh, Hayek, I think, ultimately deep down like became like so into like ignorance our ignorance and complexity theory and all of this stuff that um that libertarianism was basically a kind of excessively ideal theory and so he didn't go in that direction i think because he just thought it was never going to happen um Buchanan, it's, it's hard to know because he does have these lines about anarchy being best, but that, you know, the sort of constitutional order he advocates is like the second best. Um, but it's, it's hard to know exactly what all the productive states should be doing. Um, you do get something of a sense from him. So it's, it's hard to tell how libertarian he is and what he thinks we sh- can realistically push for. I think Friedman was the most optimistic about what we could realistically push for. Hayek the least, though he wouldn't call it optimism. Um, uh, um, I think he was enough of a non-ideal theorist that he he just thought the project of ideal theory was problematic. Now, this is belied by the fact that he will frequently say, like, oh, we need an ideal to compete with the socialists. We need something that inspires us or whatever. But I think his like aspiration for an ideal theory became the attempt to get people excited about non-ideal theory. Like, we know so little. Let's construct institutions so that we can learn. You know, um, so I don't think Hayek was actually entirely coherent on this. Um, but this is again me looking at it as a guy who's done work in ideal and non-ideal theory. So I may be demanding too much precision. But I still do think there's a tension in Hayek um, on, you know, what we should hope for, what we should what we should aim at. So we've talked a lot about the left's critiques of neoliberalism, and we've hit on some of the libertarian critiques, which that is largely that it, you know, allows the state too much of a role. But we've seen, especially over the last five, six years, a, a emergence of a like a right-wing nationalist populist critique of of what we'll call kind of the you know what might be labeled the broad neoliberal order or something that and and coming from a direction of um i think not just 
that, you know, free trade ships jobs overseas, which has been, you know, a common, you know, like rural conservative sort of critique, but also in this that the more that we are multinational, the more that we are seeing ourselves as economic agents, um, the more that that we identify with the economic order as opposed to the political order, which are all things that like neoliberalism would seem to to push for, um, the less we have this this connection to, you know, family, faith, and soil, I suppose. And is that is that new? Is there something, you know, is it a reaction to this kind of rise of neoliberalism? Like what's going on there? Well, I thought a lot about this because my next book's on anti-liberalisms, um, anti-liberalisms. And I'm focusing on the kind of intellectual vanguard of the Trumpists, um, which they turn out to be almost, you know, not the politicians. I mean, the intellectuals, they, they tend to be Catholic um, because Catholicism and Protestantism is either classically liberal or progressively liberal um, in the United States. Um, there are some exceptions, but um, important exceptions, post-liberal um, Protestants. But I mean, Catholics have never been as much of a fan of the market as Protestants. Um, and so a lot of these folks are basically saying, look, I mean, the problem with neoliberalism is it's like any liberalism. And then they have like these, they call us right liberals. And then they call the left, left liberals because they want everything they don't like to be liberal. Um, and then the conservatives, so the conservatives are all right liberals. So like Sarab Omari to me on Twitter was, I said like, Libertarians don't really address integralists very much. He was like, well, there's all these articles in National Review. Like in his mind, like it's all jumbled. It's like all one big bad. Um, um, and so for a lot of these, yeah, a lot of these folks, it's like, yeah, I mean, oh, all trade is decimated, the manufacturing base. But like, that's not the point. The point is to destroy any liberal distinctives, right? Like it's not just, oh, we want to restrict trade. Or we want to restrict immigration. They do want to do those things. Adrian Vermeule wants there to be privilege for Catholics because the more Catholics you get in the U.S., the more you'll be able to establish a Catholic regime in the U.S. Um, it's their, continent, their, their continental conservatives, deeply hostile to democracy, um, deeply hostile, hostile to anything that looks like the celebration of liberty, in part because continental liberals were a lot more uh, vicious to religion. Um, whereas Anglo Sewer liberals tend not to be. Um, so, you know, it's Maestra and Carl Schmidt and this kind of thing. So it's like it, liberal, every criticism of liberalism that has been made pretty much with the exception of some left-wing criticisms, they hold, but they want to, they want to, you know, Vermeule's talked about like searing it where it originated, like just like burning it. I mean, they use, such, they use a lot of violent language. Um, so the critique of neoliberalism is that it's like the kind of like autonomy loving hippie left, but just in the economic sphere. And it has the same, like, it's the same kind of acidic individualism. So it's, it's all really one big thing, um, which I find immensely irritating, um, because, you know, it's, it's just so sloppy to try to make all of your enemies the same enemy. Um, uh, so is that, is that, is that the point kind of, um, one reason why you wanted to, to write this piece and get it out there? Because if from Aaron's standpoint, I mean, you know, this has been commented on a lot on this show, a lot throughout and the kind of places that we read liberalism seems to be embattled from both sides and something I kind of didn't think would happen in my lifetime, but I mean, I, sh I should be more of a student of human history that these things are kind of like cyclical. But so, so, so in that sense, is this just this, the, maybe we should just say we are all neoliberals. If that's the word you're going to use, um, we could all stand together with all these people that, um, that both Adrian Vermeule and people on the illiberal left are critiquing as like basically the same, um, that we can say, okay, yeah, right. We'll stand with people who are liberal. Uh, who maybe their policies are a little bit more left-wing, traditionally speaking, or their policies are a little bit more right-wing, but at least they're liberals. Is that kind of where you think you're coming from with this? I think that that's happening. 
Um, and I think that um, it is kind of where nowhere near as bad as liberals were, the neoliberals and the order liberals were when Montpelier and society was founded. Because you had like social conservatives like Ropka in there. And, you know, so you had, you had, you know, some religion folks, but then you had Frank Knight who went ape, ape, ape when Hayek suggested calling it the Acton Tocqueville Society because they were Catholics. Um, which is one reason they call it the Mont Pelerin Society. So you had a wide range of opinion, but they were committed to a basic economic liberalism, private property, um, and, and democracy. And then they were opposed and, and, you know, liberal freedoms like speech and religion. And I think that uh, we are moving in that direction. M my analysis of this is based on like tripartite ideology distinction between socialism, liberalism, and conservatism. And I see the left as a kind of liberalism, socialism hybrid. And I see the right to the old right or the, the non, the, the liberal right as being a synthesis of liberalism and conservatism, which is what we had from, you know, the fifties with Buckley all the way down to the two thousands. Um, and now what we're getting is a, a left that's more and more just, um, like the socialist tradition, not that they want to, uh, take over the means of production, but like the kind of like obsession with progress, the willingness to appeal to like concepts like false consciousness to do away with, uh, to do away with toleration as a principle, the idea that that's like a bourgeois or privilege, you know, as it's now called. So I don't think these folks are Marxists by any means, but I do think. Um, there is a kind of, of sh uh, shedding of liberalism, um, to just more embrace kind of a socialist orientation to the world. Um, and then on the right, what we're seeing is there's the sort of embattled, um, but still dominant sort of liberalism, conservatism hybrid. And then there is the new conservatism, which is really like a conservatism, socialism hybrid. It's quasi fascist, in my opinion. Um, and sometimes just fascist. Um, so they want to use this. I mean, fascism, you know, is essentially using the state to preserve certain kinds of tr national ideas and traditions and stuff like that. Um, it's like the reasons Catholics all got behind Franco in France is they thought that Franco would destroy the socialists and the liberals, and then they'd be able to restore Catholic rule. Um, so essentially what you're seeing is the, the, the socialist and conservative ideas and frameworks and uh, mindsets being decoupled from liberalism. Um, and so the true liberals, the, the people who are liberals first, they're getting pushed into a corner. And, you know, I mean, this is the kind of thing Hayek and Schumpeter predicted. They just thought that this was going to happen. Um, we, we often forget that, like, a lot of classical liberals have been <laughs> pretty worried that the liberal order is not sustainable. Um, and that it will see this, sow the seeds of its own destruction, which is one of the things that these Catholic integralists often say, although it's bizarrely apocalyptic and, uh, ungrounded in their case. So I think, yeah, what's going on is that we could say, look, we're neoliberals or libertarians if you want to be picky. And we are with the left liberals. If you're for a big welfare state right now, that's just not the main thing that matters. Like the main thing that matters is preserving the basic liberties. Freedom of religion, freedom of speech, freedom of the press, opposing certain kind of social norms that restrict what we can say and speak, you know, say and do, um, trying to sort of treat people, uh, equally before the law and not to give up on all of that as bourgeois, like not, uh, uh, uh having some sense that this is another big stress of mine is that, you know, I think for liberalism, it's been the most opposed to class theory or any kind of theory of inherent of that social life is inherently conflictual. I mean, that's always been part of the liberal tradition, like the harmony of interests. You know what I mean? And the key to socialism is like the disharmony of interests and and continental conservatism is similar, like with Schmidt saying that all politics is war, for instance. Um, although Foucault said the same thing. So the liberals are the ones saying we can all get along. Um, and some believe in a big welfare state and some people believe in a small welfare state, but the people saying we can all get along, we can all live together. We don't have to fight to the death. But the thing that the thing, the progressive left and the illiberal right, um, the illiberal left and liberal right, they want to fight like they, 
they don't hate each other as much as they hate us. Um, they like that there's just an enemy, right? And the, particularly the illiberal right, they're just like, look, you know, they're excited about this. This is what Amari says. There's no peace in the culture war. The only way, he says, is through. And I always want to ask, through who? <laughs> um, um, because there is an answer to that question. Um, that's pretty ugly. So I think there's like a, one of the things that's going on is because of falling trust and greater polarization, people just want to tear each other to pieces. And liberalism becomes under threat when people want to hurt each other. Um, and, you know, liberalism does the best when people are uh, don't see much reason to fight. Um, and so what we have to do is creatively make the case that um, we can't all get along. Uh, and so I think that's like the most important thing right now is just pointing to the desirability and the possibility of tolerance and um, and it being, you know, because that's what we're losing is that people on the left and right are just like, look, I'm correct and the others are incorrect and um, we're going to smash them. You know, um, you know, it's a force that gives them meaning, right? I mean, the old Chris Hedges uh, thing, um, I think it was Chris Hedges, the war is a force that gives us meaning. So politics as war is the force that gives them meaning. It's also a consequence of secularization, in my view, where the war mentality is common to a lot of, of religious people, but it can be directed towards yourself, you know, like that you're, you're, you're battling your own passions or you're fighting your own desires. Do you know what I mean? Um, whereas I think for many there are many secular people that like draw on religious traditions, you know, like obviously Aaron, Aaron does, but Buddhism and Christianity are actually pretty similar in that respect, in the sense that, that the big fight, right? The big fight is not to dominate some other group. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Um, so I think a lot of these folks on the right, they passively, without realizing it, implicitly secularized. Um, and so um, they just see politics as all that matters. So you've got these people who say they're evangelical Christians, but all they do is watch Fox News. They go to church like once a year or something in Easter. That's what they really care about is defeating the butt. Um, so yeah, that's my, my kind of take on this is that, you know, we need a kind of liberal coalition. Um, and that is self-conscious and that is ready to say to both sides as much as they don't want to hear it that we don't have to do this there is another way thank you for listening if you enjoy free thoughts make sure to rate and review us in apple podcasts or in your favorite podcast app Free Thoughts is produced by Landry Ayers. If you'd like to learn more about libertarianism, visit us on the web at www.libertarianism.org.